0: section three of captain cook by walter besant this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami before the mast part one the boy as the book above quoted goes on to explain turned to the southward when he reached the top of the cliff and walked across the fields through hinderwell churchyard to the road which in the year seventeen forty two was only a cross-country track and not a made road at all, leading to the village of Lythe. Here he struck into the way along the cliff made by those who searched for jet, and those who worked in the alum trade, and so walked into Whitby, which he reached before the events already narrated, concerned with the awakening of Mr. Sanderson, happened. It was not yet six o'clock when he stood upon the west cliff, on which there was not a single house, and looked down upon the town below he saw a closely-built populous place the houses stuck together as if to prevent each other from falling from the steep sides of the cliff into the port itself there were few streets on the west side except the day itself the long quay behind which the houses began narrow courts with stone steps led up between the lower houses to those above the roofs were of bright red tiles the coal-smoke hung over the town there was an inner port connected with the outer by a drawbridge already the town was astir the cobbles and the smacks had come in and were unlading their cargo a sail was going on loud and noisy the beetle was bawling the loss of a mare lost stolen or strayed and ringing his bell with many yeo hoes they were warping a ship out of the harbour From the dockyard, beyond the inner port, there came the beating of a hundred hammers, wielded by those who built the sturdy Whitby craft. The children played about the quay, sliding up and down the ropes and looking at the casks filled with fish to be sent up country and sold. The carts stood ready for those who were waiting to carry the fish about the farms and villages. Whitby was awake and in the full swing of work. It was then as now a busy and important place. It had a population of nearly 10,000. Many ships were built there. It furnished ships and crews for the coal trade along the coast. The Whitby ships traded with Norway, Sweden, Hamburg, Bremen, Danzig, and St. Petersburg. A large part of the Baltic trade was in the hands of Whitby. Her merchants and shipowners were wealthy and responsible persons, Whitby sent out whalers. Whitby sent to London iron, stone, alum and jet. At Whitby there were made ropes, sails, blocks, yards, and all kinds of gear wanted for ships, and Whitby was the center of a great fishery. In those days it had but one church, the old church on the east cliff, up the long flight of two hundred steps. It was so crowded on Sunday that although they had not yet pulled down the north aisle and built up the large square structure which now stands there they had already begun the construction of the galleries which are stuck all about the church wherever one can be placed they had also already squared off the roof put in the skylights and modernized the windows the name of the place was by some written white bay it is so spelt on the tombstone of a certain minister of the parish who died in the beginning of the century but this was pedantic the old name of the town streonshall had long been forgotten which is a thousand pities in the same way the old name of the little hamlet three miles north thor di sa has been clean forgotten and changed into east row which is indeed a drop the boy saw the church on the east cliff and behind it the ruins of st hilda's abbey church in his day the central tower was still standing he saw one ship going out of the harbour and another ship taking her cargo on board he walked quickly down the west cliff to the quay boarded the ship and offed his cap to the mate under the east cliff there is nestled the oldest part of whitby town here is the old town hall built upon a great central pillar thicker than those of durham cathedral with a pillar of more slender diameter for each of the corners Here are two narrow streets running parallel with the cliff, and half a dozen courts running up the lower slope before the cliff begins. Under the town hall is the market, as you see it today, so James Cook saw it that day when he walked in from Stathes. Pigs and sheep, poultry, fruit, and vegetables are sold in this market. For fish you can go to the quay on the other side. Many of the houses in this part of the town have got the date of their erection over the doors one is dated 1704 another 1688 and so on by far the greater part of them are more than a hundred years old in the lower of the two streets courts nearly as narrow as the yarmouth passages run down to the water's edge or to houses built overhanging the water some of these are old taverns they have built outside broad wooden galleries or verandas with green railings and steps to the water where the captains or mates of the colliers could sit with a pipe in a cool tankard and gossip away the time between dinner and supper looking out to sea the while between the cliffs when the sailor is not afloat he loves to sit where he can gaze upon a harbour and ships and the blue water outside at the raffled anchor for instance even a sluggish imagination can easily discern james Cook himself in his rough sea dress and tarred hands sitting among his friends and shipmates, himself already having gained the quarter-deck. He is a silent young man. He refuses not his drink, but he does not sing and bluster. Indeed, the Whitby mariners were ever a quiet and God-fearing folk, though in the matter of drink. But were they worse than the landsmen? A picture of Whitby of this date tells little that one who knows the place cannot discover on the spot. The reconstruction of the town of 1742 needs but the knocking down of the modern part and of a few shop-fronts and recent structures. The build of the Whitby ship, in the picture one is lying in the inner harbour, has been little modified. She is round in the bow, broad and square in the stern, her lines are laid for room rather than for speed, her length is about three times her breadth. In the picture, just as now, the houses cluster at the foot of the east cliff, the dockyard is in full activity, the port is full of bustle and business. The Book of Things Forgotten narrates that the ship in which Cook offered his services was ready for sea, that he was taken on board as ship's boy and proved himself during the voyage to London Port and home, a lad of quick parts and great activity, insomuch that the rope's end was seldom required to start him and the mate though a choleric person found it unnecessary to cuff the boy unless he was actually within reach further that this officer interested himself being of a generous and humane disposition in the boy and advised him to get bound to the owners of the ship for a term of years holding out his own remarkable rise from the position of apprentice to be mate or first lieutenant of the collier To this rank, he said, the boy might himself reasonably and even laudably aspire, though it was given to few to reach so dizzy an elevation. In short, he persuaded the boy for his own good. The owners of the ship were two Quaker merchants, brothers, named John and Henry Walker. They lived together and had their office in the narrow street now named Grape Lane, but then a continuation of Sandgate. Their house, now converted into two, still stands, a plain Quaker-like house. These worthy gentlemen received the lad as their apprentice, bound to him for three years, with the consent of his father, and perhaps after the former articles with Mr. Sanderson had been torn up and annulled. End of Section 3